Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. I am excited to welcome today's guest, Chuck Sloreski. Chuck is the president and CEO of People's Bank Corp, a $7 billion asset regional banking firm headquartered in Marietta, Ohio. The company trades on NASDAQ under the symbol PEBO, P-E-B-O, and is consistently ranked as a top performing institution. Chuck is a longtime friend and prior client of our firm, and I'm grateful that he's agreed to share some of his many leadership and banking insights with us. Welcome, Chuck. Hey, Alan, it's great to be with you. Thank you for the pleasure and the honor. So diving into the talent pool, your bank has successfully acquired and integrated a number of institutions, I think 10 or so, over the last decade. How do you see the current M&A climate in banking? And is it a buyer's or a seller's market today? Well, right now, I would say that uh, no market because uh, nobody's buying and nobody's selling. And some of that has to do with the accounting regulations and not to get too technical, but some of the fluctuation in rates of course, different asset classes to be valued at different levels, which just makes the whole thing a bit of a mess. I think it's a temporary phenomena, and I think M&A will be very much a part of the future. But I would say in 22, it was definitely slower than usual, and I think it will be slower than usual in 23. And while I'm no balance sheet expert, you know, I read all the time about underwater bond portfolios and how that's affecting bond valuations because of the rise in interest rates. And I guess that's another dampening effect on the industry in many cases as well. Yeah, and that's exactly it. As interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down and the banks have to now take that decrease in value onto a knock onto capital. Okay, so that put some of the ratios out of whack. And it's also hard to look at an institution that you're acquiring and make a prediction of what's going to happen with the rates and what the effect of all of that will be. So the safe thing that most people like to do is to do nothing. Right. And I guess if you're a bank with an outsized investment portfolio and maybe long on the yield curve a little bit, you could be particularly unattractive at the moment, even though you never thought that would be the case. Yes. So it does create some challenges. For us, uh, we have an acquisition uh, that's going to be completed in hopefully in the second quarter. You know, we went into it with our eyes open. And uh, while the street has punished us for the deal, I know that our earnings are going to increase meaningfully from the deal. And in the long run, you know, the key to valuation is really what a company can earn. And, uh, you know, we took a long range approach and believe we'll be rewarded for that. And if I'm recalling correctly, it may not be, uh, that's about a billion and a half asset institution, give or take. So people's will be eight and a half billion or a little bit north of that, you know, by the summer, whenever that deal closes. Correct. So while we're talking about the industry, what are your thoughts on the role of fintechs? Everybody wants to get more fintechy and find a way to partner with fintech firms, even though I think a lot of those firms are just lead generation engines operating online. But talk to me a little bit about how you see the fintech world and the potential regulation of some of those types of institutions. I'm actually in favor of regulation that protects the consumer and some of the practices in terms of interest rates, charging for loans and fees. And I really think that the consumer protections are needed. I believe that many of these fintechs will be unsuccessful. I believe that those that are successful and create a meaningfully distinctive and valuable and safe technology platform 
will have great success. And at the end of the day, they'll end up being owned by the Bank of Americas and the Chase and the larger institutions that have the capital to, you know, to buy them. I think for us, like many community banks, we all partner with a core provider and the core providers are all trying to make relationships with various fintechs to be able to bring services that the banks can use. And I don't see us doing much with fintech beyond staying attuned to what our core provider is you know, trying to do. And just like you know, a year ago, uh, I was getting questions from everybody about what are you doing with crypto? And I was one of those dumb people that said, I'm not doing anything with crypto. And lo and behold, nobody's asking what we're doing with crypto right now. I think you know, a few years from now, people, nobody will be asking, what are you doing with fintechs? So rather than partnering up with particular fintechs, your strategy is very comfortable letting your core provider do the vetting and you know part, potentially partnering or developing and then bringing you or choosing among their choices for what kind of applications and tools and things that you think make the sense for your customers. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Correct. That's That's our approach. We've also invested in a fund that makes fintech investments. That investment allows us access to firms that are part of the fund and also gives us a chance to enjoy appreciation if there is appreciation. But again, I think that most of those fintech firms will get knocked out. And you saw a lot of them get knocked out early in the pandemic. So with all of the non-bank competition out there, including the growth of credit unions, what does the future of the industry actually look like from your perspective? You know, where are we in, you know, 2030, you know, seven years from now as a banking industry? Well, I'll just go back in time. Uh, when I was in college, there were 20,000 banks. When I took this job, there were 7,700 banks. And today there's 4,700 banks. And I think, you know, if you're asking me how many will there be in, you know, seven years, there'll be, you know, somewhere between 35 and 3,700 banks. They'll continue to disappear. And those that will survive will be focused on some of the things that we have talked about previously, uh, really the talent, the strategy, and the risk. And there'll be the banks that made, that made investments. We have an expression in our company about no deferred maintenance. And it means paint on the walls and facilities. It means technology. It means safety. Uh, you know, from a technology standpoint, we want to make the investments today so we can survive tomorrow. Uh, it's a real temptation in our industry to save your way to prosperity. Uh, and a lot of the places that don't make those investments, whether it's human capital or technology, you know, they die. And I think that people in our industry need to avoid uh, the flavor of the day. If you go back two, three years ago, what were all the banks announcing? oh, we're going to close 10%, 15%, 20% of our branches. Why? Uh, because uh, nobody was using them during the pandemic and interest rates were low. And now all of a sudden, interest rates are higher. And uh, guess what? Deposits are scarce and hard to come by. And what's the best way of getting deposits? It's branches. And so there's always the flavor of the day. And I think that management teams really have to think and vet through all the alternatives to those types of issues. So I just want to touch briefly on every bank's favorite topic, which is credit unions. 
and the banks love to hate the credit unions. It is not a level playing field, as everyone knows from a tax and, and probably regulatory perspective as well. I have seen some credit unions that were very strong retail and small business competitors in the market. And I just sort of wonder where do you think all of that dynamic of the credit union competitor shakes out? Does the playing field ever get level? And credit unions, of course, now are, are buying banks. There's been more than a few deals in the last couple of years where larger credit unions are just paying cash because they have no equity to offer and buying community banks. Thoughts on all that dynamic? Yes, I am a good banker. I hate the credit unions. I think every bank that's near a credit union or can see a credit union should buy a billboard with an arrow and say, these guys do not pay taxes. And I think such a small percentage of the American population understands that. People are unaware. A lot of times you can make people aware and they they say, oh my God, I'm going to move my account. So I think that the issue is not widely uh, understood. And, you know, they do have an advantage. Uh, you know, we're lucky. Most of my footprint credit unions are a minor pain in the backside. But in prior parts of my life, I've worked where credit unions had, you know, 40, 50 percent share of, a, you know, of a market. So I think the question for regulators, uh, for politicians, is why do they allow that to continue? The reason why they allow that continue is the credit union lobby funds many of these positions. And uh, that's not the best thing for America. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. You've been listening to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan from Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to hear more from our guests, listen to our other podcast, or learn more about our firm, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thank you for joining us.